You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, here was one headline from the news that caught my attention this morning. Said, all humans are descended from just two people. And a catastrophic event almost wiped out all species 100,000 years ago, scientists claim. What a headline. Isn't that interesting? That's from the Daily Mail. Now, I don't agree with everything in the article, with all of their findings. Uh, I believe that those findings are severely tainted by the theory of evolution. But I'm happy to see that they're finally figuring some things out. You see, the article goes on to claim that all modern-day humans descended from just two adults. Two adults. Can you imagine that? Interesting. And that there was a worldwide event that seemed to wipe out uh, most of, of, of living creation. Doesn't the Bible say something about a flood? I don't know for sure, but maybe there's a correlation. But the research was led by senior research associate Mark Stokel and research associate David Thaler. I think I'm saying their names right. He's from the University of Basel, Switzerland. And these two guys came to this conclusion And David Thaler said this. He said, this conclusion is very surprising. And I fought against it as hard as I could. (laughs) Interesting. Do you guys ever wonder if God doesn't just have a good chuckle at the expense of our scientists every now and then? (laughs) I think you must find it a little bit amusing. And yet, on the other hand, it must fill his heart with a sadness, too. Why do I bring this up? Because we're talking about something that is very rare in modern culture, and also very rare in Christian culture, Christian churches, and that is the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. That's the big idea that we're covering today in this message, but it is God who tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, In other words, if you want to be a wise person, if you want to be a person that understands things in our world, in our universe, be it scientifically, mathematically, or any other way, hey, a good place to start would be with the fear of the Lord. Perhaps some of you here today will remember a time when John Lennon and the Beatles stirred up quite a bit of controversy in the culture when John Lennon said this. He said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. I've had several conversations with my mother-in-law. She remembers when that was published and uh, she was a huge Beatles fan, but uh, it prompted her and those in her youth group to actually take the records of the Beatles, and they, they, they burned them in a pile. So they were like, yeah, we'll show you who's more popular in our hearts. So I thought that was interesting. But isn't it interesting how that comment by John Lennon shows this general lack of reverence for Jesus Christ? I believe that John Lennon fully knows the truth of just how popular Jesus is today. And we are seeing that Christianity is going to last. And here's why. Jesus Christ is the founder of the church. Jesus Christ, God's own son, 
is the one who started Christianity. And whether he's popular or not, he will always be. Now here is another quote that I love that I want to share with you guys this morning. It's been said, Never be afraid to stand with the minority which is right. For the minority which is right will one day be the majority. Always be afraid to stand with the majority which is wrong. For the majority which is wrong will one day be the minority. So take heart. Because while we today in our society are facing a lot of pressure as Christians, as Christians we face pressure to fear the majority, to be conformed to the world, to their way of thinking, to their philosophy, to their scientific reasoning. But the Bible teaches us that the cure for fearing the majority especially the majority that is wrong, is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but you probably, if you're anything like me, struggle with what others think of you. In fact, today in the social media environment, that's a big thing. We post and then we check back five minutes later to see what people think about what we posted, right? We check back ten minutes later to see if anybody took issue with what we wrote, and it's a very sensitive culture that we live in today when, when we are so aware, made, made so aware of what everybody thinks. Everybody has a platform on the internet, the digital world today. But, but listen, the fear of the Lord can expel the fear of men from our lives. Let's make our way through the text this morning where I will comment on a few things as we go, making observations, interpreting some of the, the verses, And then at the end, we're going to dive into the application of this text for our lives this morning. So, look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 22 as we pick it up, continuing in our study through the book of 1 Samuel. We read, Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Now let's wait right here. Let's pause right here for a second. Backing it up to verses 22 and 23. Let me explain to you this morning that we know that from Exodus chapter 38 and verse 8, there were women who served the Lord on a daily basis at the gate of the tabernacle. They were women who helped the Levites, the Levitical priests, in their duties as they carried out many tasks that were associated with the worship of the God of Israel. They had a special ministry to the Lord, and they had a special place in the Lord's heart. But, as in everything that involves human nature, there was corruption. Now, once again, we see how the Bible is so relevant for our lives today. 
I, I'd laugh when people say, oh, that's an old book of stories. It's no longer relevant. <laughs> every time I read it, I'm like, hmm, I think I've seen this before. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, the news every day. Yeah. So the Bible is applicable to our lives today. It is relevant for our lives. Especially today, we live in the time of the hashtag MeToo movement, where we see this same kind of corruption has infiltrated every level of human power structures. Why? Because of the corruption of human nature. We should note, not surprisingly, that the church is not immune to this kind of corruption. Why is that? Well, it's because of the sinful nature, the flesh of every single human being on the planet. Yes, newsflash, you have one too. (laughs) You have one too. Your pastor has one. I have a sin nature, okay? And so we, as collectively as human beings, we struggle with our sin nature. Yet we as Christians understand that sin, this is where Christianity is different from the world, our worldview teaches us that sin is not an external thing, it is not a single act outwardly, but it is a nature that has fallen and is within us. This explains why any single human being can be capable of the most despicable acts of corruption, including the things like the mass shootings that we see today, or what Eli and Hophni's, or Eli's sons are doing. Hophni and Phinehas says they're sleeping with the women who are ministering to the Lord before the tabernacle. Let's guide this story back into the scripture and the text today, what I want to point out to us all right here in verse 23 is note the failure of Eli as a father and as a priest to remove his sons from their priestly office. Listen, when these kinds of accusations are heard, they need to be heard seriously. They need to be investigated and they need to be validated upon the word of two to three witnesses. And if they're found to be true, then guess what? They need to be acted on. They need to be acted on. Especially when we're talking about the context of God's holy tabernacle. The church today is no different. God's holy church needs to have church discipline being exercised even against the men who presume to represent Jesus Christ to the people. These men should be stripped of their office as priests instead of being passed over or simply moved to a different location. Hey, there's a failure here. There's a failure. And this failure is on Eli's shoulders. We might say that the failures that we see today within the modern day church, I'm talking the Christian church as well as Catholic, all of these recent headlines resulting from the hashtag MeToo movement recently, hey, there is responsible individuals that need to exercise church discipline. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be investigation. There needs to be uh, corroboration of statements. And, 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 and then there needs to be removal if there's guilt if there's uh, of the guilty parties. However, as we shall see, this is all part of a greater failure. Let's continue in verse 24. Know my sons, Eli says, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. 
If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Let's pause here for a moment. Let me explain to you that in Levitical law, the book of Leviticus, there was a category of sin that would actually result in the person being cut off. This term for being cut off was basically, or it meant that because of the nature of the person's heart, who was deliberately sinning against God, that they were to be handed over to the Lord for His judgment upon their lives. That is basically what Eli is referring to here. The fact that his sons have committed sins, very serious sins against God. And and they're guilty of such deliberate rebellion that they are now in danger of being cut off. In other words, handed over to God for His direct hand of judgment upon their lives. We forget that we serve a God of judgment. We forget, church, that there is one judge, one lawgiver, one who is righteous and just and holy and able to discern accurately the motives of men's hearts and to judge accurately what is going on in our lives. And here we read that there is even a point where someone can reach, where they are so deliberately rebellious against the Lord that in their sin they can actually be handed over to God for His judgment in their lives. Now in verse 26 we see a contrast to the rebellious hearts of Eli's sons. Look at verse 26. It says, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Now that's put there on purpose. That's put there to to, uh, create a contrast. For you and to me, so that we can see, for you and me, that we can see clearly the difference in these men's hearts. You Bible students will also immediately recognize that this verse was also used to speak of the childhood phrase, or or the, the childhood of Jesus Christ's life. Okay, that was the exact phrase that Jesus also grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. So, so interesting here how that ties in to the story about the fear of the Lord. Jesus stands in contrast, as Samuel stood in contrast, to this heart of rebellion. Verse 27, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And and did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice? That's a, a term of rebelliousness there. Why are you kicking at my sacrifice? He says, and why do, and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me. Now, if you are a, one that writes in your Bible, Underline that phrase right there. Honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Now, very quickly, let me just point out there that Eli is guilty of honoring his children more than he's honoring the Lord. Now, that could be a convicting statement for some parents here this morning who have put their children before everything else in their lives. 
to the point that you have now enabled your children to not be able to function as Christians who follow Christ in his sufferings in this world. You see, all of us as Christians are going to experience hardship, trial, suffering. All of us have to realize that our job as parents is to point our children to Jesus Christ first and foremost, to lead them to him by our relationship, our walk with the Lord. And and, and we have to show them that God is first in our lives. And this is where we, so often as parents, we fail. We fail to show our children that our faith is first. And, and, And our children grow up and they realize, hey, for my dad, yeah, he says that this is important to him, but here's what he does, and so I see what's really going on here. And instead of learning the valuable lesson that faith is first, they realize, hey, no, all these other things, yeah, that's what they say, but here's what's real. And so there's a dichotomy there, and it's not right. But Eli here had done that. He was honoring his sons more than the Lord to the point that he even withheld discipline from them. Parents, this is such a good word for us this morning. Disciplining children is not fun. Disciplining children is not something that you should love. If you love disciplining your child, you have a problem, okay? (laughs) But it's something we have to do because we love them. Because our Father in heaven who loves us, he doesn't shirk his responsibilities of making sure that when it's time to step in, that he does so. That when it's time to send a messenger, he does so. Did you notice that? Notice that God the Father sent a message to Eli, his son. Notice that, first of all, God always sends a messenger. Maybe I'm that messenger today. Maybe you coming to church is not a chance thing. Maybe God is speaking to your heart through the message of his word. But secondly, notice that God's messenger always speaks God's truth. And sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? The truth is hard to hear sometimes. The message may hurt, but listen, it is an honest, correct assessment of what is going on. The real issue is seen in verse 29 there. It is a heart issue. Eli and his sons were guilty of putting themselves before God. They honored themselves more highly than God in the way that they lived. And here in verse 30, the next verse that we're going to read, we find the theme verse for this entire chapter. Check it out. Verse 30 says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. The word honor here in the original Hebrew language is kabad. And there it is on your screen, kabad or kabed. It is a primitive root word that means to be heavy. And it can be used in two senses. In the bad sense, it means burdensome, severe, or dull. But it can also have a good sense. A good sense meaning numerous or rich or honorable. And this word causatively means to make weighty. Okay, To make something have weight, in other words. The person who gives God a heavy place in their life, in a good sense, means that you are honoring God. You give to him the respect, the reverence that God deserves, okay? That's what uh, God is saying there to Eli. 
But Eli and his sons were doing the opposite, weren't, weren't they? The word despise there in verse 30 is the Hebrew kalal, or lightly esteemed. I'm sorry, lightly esteemed. That's the word in English, and it's kalal in Hebrew, and that means to make light, okay? It means the exact opposite of kabat. God is sending a very clear message here. To the person who thinks lightly of God, to the person who thinks little of God, who does not take God seriously, and does not treat God as he deserves to be treated, listen, God will in turn lightly esteem them. In other words, they will be held in contempt by God. Think about this, guys. You see, so often our tendency as Americans living in Western culture with a church on every, culture, on every corner is we become judgmental and critical. We come into church thinking, all right, what's in it for me? And we come with a critical spirit and we sit and reside in the seat of judgment over that church and that pastor and that message and those songs and that worship team and everything that's going on. And at the end of the day, it's really a mirror of your own heart. You see, you're not the one who is judging things. It is God who is actually holding you in judgment. It is God who is actually seeing your heart. Those that come to church and lightly esteem the things of God and do not give God the place that he deserves will in turn be held in light esteem by the Lord. The Bible is teaching us here. A great illustration of this is in the life of David and Goliath. An amazing story that we're going to read later on. But Goliath was a man who thought little of God. He thought so little of the God of Israel, he came out and mocked him daily in the face of the Israelite army. David, on the other hand, thought that God was everything. He had learned to depend upon God in his life for everything. The source of his strength. The source of everything for David in his life. And he depended on him even for victory. And in the end, it was Goliath who was brought low. And it was David who was exalted. You see, the person who does not give God the heavy place in his or her thoughts that God deserves, they will find that they themselves are made truly small in God's sight. The prophet of God now goes on to describe what the punishment will be for Eli and his failure to fear God and honor him by removing his sons from their place. Look at verse 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house. That's figurative language for meaning his family, his strength, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, and in one day they shall die, both of them. Let's pause there for a moment. Notice the words cut off, used several times in these verses. Again, that ties this passage to the Levitical warning to those who sin deliberately against the holiness of God. In other words, if somebody is brash enough and prideful enough to exalt themselves, and to, to rebel against the holiness of God in a deliberate way, listen, they're in danger of God's judgment in their life. The prophecy is marked with a sign. 
Did you notice that? The sign, in other words, is going to be triggered by this sign of the death of Hophni and Phinehas on the same day. Hey, that is something only God can do. That is something only God can know. Another proof for the existence of God is the amazing prophecy of the Scriptures. And so, verse 35, we continue on, seeing how Eli is going to know that God is going to do this thing. He says, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed. Verse 36, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. So we come now to the end of the chapter, but I want to call your attention here to verse 35 again, where again we see a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus is that true and faithful priest who will show the world what is the heart and the mind of God. He is the one who comes that is not only going to be faithful, 100% faithful to God, but also notice there, there's a balance. It's not just that Jesus is going to be faithful. He's going to do the will of God 100% of the time. Oh man, I rejoice in that. I praise God for that. You see, I know that as your pastor, in the weakness of my own flesh, I don't always do God's perfect will. I fail. I sin. And I rejoice in the fact that there is coming a one, a priest, a faithful high priest, who is going to be 100% faithful to God, but not only to him, but also he's going to show to all of us that he always does God's will. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus' life. That's what the Gospels tell us. That Jesus faithfully received the word, the will of God, and he gave that to the people. He always did God's perfect will. He always does God's perfect will. That is why he and he alone, church, is able to save us from from the sinful hearts that are within us. You see, if we had a, a high priest who was a sinner just like us, he wouldn't be able to save us. We wouldn't be able to trust him. But we have a faithful high priest who will always do that which is God's perfect will. And so, so church, we can rejoice in that today. Jesus is able to save. He's able to save us all. We come now to the last part today, which is the application of this message. And if you're following along in your outline, this is really where you, uh, you know, some of the blanks there are that you can fill in. What is the fear of the Lord? That's kind of what this has been the underlying theme of this chapter here. And I want to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. The fear of the Lord, according to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, is an expression that conveys either devotional reverence, okay, so it's, it's an expression that conveys devotional reverence, or the dread of punishment. If you're writing that down, there's two aspects of the fear of the Lord. One is devotional reverence, the other is dread of punishment. Interesting. Both of those things are part of the fear of the Lord, Now, the term Lord, when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, that's always referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Scriptures. The fear of the Lord is actually a major theme in the Bible, Old Testament and New. It's really interesting that it doesn't get taught as much in the church because it underlies the entire framework of the Bible. Turn over to Ecclesiastes for an example of that this morning. Turn over to Ecclesiastes in your Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. 
And I'll warn you, here at Calvary Chapel, we like to use our Bibles. So pull it out. Bring it with you. Grab a marker. We like to underline things too. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14. Let's read these verses together. And I can wait a few minutes. I hear some pages rustling. That's a great thing. I love it. It's music to my ears. Hearing people turning the pages of the Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. We read this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So notice there that the end of the whole matter, at the end of the day, it's about fearing God. The wisest man on the earth tells us, fear God and keep his commandments. That's man's everything. For God is going to bring everything that we do into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. For those that are good will receive a crown. For that which is evil, it's going to be burned away like chaff. We're going to experience the regret of of having not done what we should have done in that moment, right? Now, we come to the basic precepts of the fear of the Lord, First of all, we're talking about God's existence. This is an underlying tenet or precept or principle of the fear of God. Listen, creation speaks of God's existence. Our own moral compass that's been planted within us points to a moral lawgiver. The Bible itself is a testament to the existence of God. We just studied that in our bibliology class here in the School of Discipleship and Ministry. The Bible itself is an amazing evidence and proof that God does exist and that He does want to reveal Himself to human beings. Secondly, though, the second precept of the fear of the Lord is God's nature and God's character. We have to take that into account. His omniscience, meaning that He knows everything from beginning to end before it even happens. That's why he can prophesy of the future of what's going to happen to Eli's family. He knows it all. His omnipotence, the fact that he's all powerful and working all things to his uh, desired end. And then omnipresence, how his presence is everywhere. God is spirit. And then you add to that his character, the chief attribute being his love, from which stem his holiness, his truthfulness, his justice, and his joy. All of that, God's character, we have to take that into existence. And thirdly, the third tenet of God's, or the fear of the Lord is God's relationship with us. God desires in all of his divine majesty, think about it, church, in all of his omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence, and in his character, he desires a relationship with you and I. That's the big idea that is expressed throughout the entire Bible, you see, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? That's the first thing. Note that. It's the first thing, to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve Him, or to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes which I command you today for your good. That's what the Lord requires. Notice there that everything that God does is for our good. It's out of his perfect love for us. 
He loves us. He desires to walk in a relationship with us. And he knows that if we don't have the fear of God, then that relationship can't be what it's supposed to be. That fear of the Lord. Now we all know that unfortunately, because of free will, there are many who don't know this and many more who don't care. They don't care that God desires to have a relationship with them. I wonder how many of us in the church fall into that category of apathy and complacency, knowing that this amazing God who created you and I for relationship with him, and yet we don't care. We don't give God the heaviness, the weighted place in our thoughts and lives, our daily schedule that he deserves. Secondly, we come to the case study of Eli and his sons, and we're just about done. I'm not going to take long on this. All I want to say is that for Eli and his sons, perhaps the greatest mistake in Eli's life was his failure to fear the Lord. Now, we're not told that Eli, you know, was not a child of God, but he definitely had fallen out of fellowship with God. He definitely was not in a place where he was giving God honor and respect and reverence. And how interesting, because this man was responsible for the sacrifices on a daily basis. He was responsible for the worship that was taking place in the tabernacle. Church, whenever people ask me what they can pray for me for, I always tell them, hey, pray for my relationship with Jesus. Pray for me as a pastor that my walk with Jesus would be real and it would be sincere, that I would have the fear of the Lord in my life. I covet your prayers for those things. But, but we see that, that there was a failure in Eli's life. First of all, as a priest. There's a failure to fear the Lord as a priest. The man who was supposed to be leading his people in worship was himself not fearing, not walking in the fear of the Lord, not honoring God, not giving God the weightiness that he deserved in his own life personally. Secondly, as a parent, he, as a parent, failed to realize that he was a steward over these two sons and that it was his job to step in and to discipline them even if it meant, hey, a public removal and shaming of his sons from office. That was what the Lord required. That was what the Lord expected. And yet, because Eli did not honor God more than he honored his sons, he honored his sons more than he honored God, and because of that, he didn't go through with it. That's convicting as a parent. We need to ask ourselves, am I guilty of a failure to fear the Lord in my parenting? And thirdly, as a person, you see, Eli was a, personal, or was a person who had been created for a personal relationship with the Lord, just like you and me, just like you here this morning. You see, God desires to have a personal relationship with you. He desires that your first thought in the morning when you wake up would be, Lord, I want to I meet with you. I want to talk to you. I want to have fellowship with you. He desires that you and he would be walking together through life in a friendship relationship. It's a beautiful thing. So as we close here this morning, the question for us to consider, is God heavy in your mind and in your heart? Or do you think lightly of him? 
Is God heavy in your mind and in your heart when you come to church and you're coming to worship the living God? You're coming to pour out your heart to say, God, you deserve my worship. You deserve my praise. And I'm here to willingly give it to you, God, with all that I am because you are amazing. Because of who you are and what you have done, God, I'm here. Or do we come and we're just like, oh, yeah, let's get this over with. It's a part of my week. It's been a part of my week since I was a kid. My mom and dad made me do it. I make my kids do it. I really don't know why I'm doing it. I'm just here. Man, how that grieves the heart of the Lord. Think about it. Do you think lightly of the Lord? What about your work week? What about the schedule that you've got coming up? Even now as we think, we're, we're thinking ahead. We've got meetings. We've got, uh, we've got you know, all these things laid out in our daily schedules. Have we considered that God, have we, have we thought of God heavily in that planning of that schedule and thought, you know what, God, I'm going to lay this out before you this week and be in prayer. God, help me in this meeting. Lord, I need you to do, help me with this. And Father, here's, here's a place where I'm going to dedicate to just spending time with you in my work week. Guys, we need to be, be about that. If we are not about that, we're missing out on one of the biggest blessings that we've been created for. You see, the fear of the Lord, the positive side of it is that we are guided into this amazing relationship with Jesus. And that's what he wants. That's what he desires. Amen, church? Let's pray.